So tonight we pick it up in chapter 22, and we read this going forward. Now we're in the middle of the civil law. So the Ten Commandments we covered, now we're in that middle part. That's the civil law, and we're kind of jumping into it where it's already been covering things about accountability, actions, capital punishment for kidnapping and murder and things like that. And now we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found out and found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in the thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindles the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or driven away, no one's seen it, then an oath of the Lord shall be made between them both, that he shall not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it all shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, it was hired, and it came for hire. These are more of these laws with civil law, like I mentioned, and we could really summarize these as being responsibility for property and how we treat property. Now, again, the context, of course, is an agriculture society, what we call an agri-society, but the principle is certainly there for a metropolitan area or cities as well. One word that we see repeatedly is restore, or the concept of restore, which is the word restitution. Restore is in the first verse, and then we see restitution in verse 3. We see it pop up again later on in verse 5, make restitution. There it is again in verse 6, surely make restitution. Then later on, we see make restitution again down in verse 12. And then there in verse 14, it says, make it good. It's all restitution. So these are common sense things. And when Jesus was asked about the law of the greatest commandments, he said, of course, it is to love the Lord your God vertically with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal. We talked about this last week. Vertical with God, horizontal with society. And this is horizontal. And this is the law. Now, when we get to Leviticus 19, that is where that famous verse is, you will love your neighbor as yourself. So the Bible presumes we already love ourselves. We already look out for our self-interest. So all we have to do to be fruitful in the Lord, old covenant, new covenant, is to think of others, which is one of the hardest things for us to do because we tend to be selfish and to be 
our own gravitational pull that things revolve around us. And it takes the ministry, it takes faith, it takes grace and mercy, fear of the Lord, things that you see throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, to really get past ourselves and think of others. To be servant leaders or examples of the heart of God for humanity. And what's true in the New Testament is true in the Old Testament. That if we would love our neighbors ourselves, we'll do just fine. So if we consider how we would feel about how someone treats us, what someone says to us, how they respond to us, what they do to us, or what they don't do for us, with common sense. Because this really is common sense, isn't it? I mean, you have to admit, this is, this is good common sense. Like, you broke it, you pay for it. Or you hire these people to do the work on your house, the machine broke, you're not responsible for the machine breaking. It broke, you hired them, it broke into your house when they are fixing it. But that's not your fault, that's their product. So you're not to make restitution, which is what you might have caught that principle in the last verse of what we just read. So it's just common sense of making restitution. And so the application on this with the word restitution over and over and over, we left off last week with accountability, right? We saw accountability was a big part on the back part of chapter 21, that accountability, just accountability. But this is not just accountability, this is restitution. See, if you commit a crime and you're held accountable, that means you stand before a judge and you're sentenced and you're accountable and you're gonna pay your debt to society. You might work at a fire camp for six months or something, moderate felon, something like that, drug dealing, whatever. It, that would be your accountability to the law. And there's laws that if you're dealing crystal meth or cocaine or whatever, and you get caught with a kilo, you're gonna go away to, you're gonna be sentenced and you're gonna go away to fire camp. This happened to a friend of mine back in the uh, early 80s. So it's very a very clear thing I can think about. And you know, it was nine months and, and that was accountability. But restitution is like if you had a similar situation where you committed a crime and there was bodily harm or property harm, not only would you be accountable, legally, if you will, for what you did, and maybe a criminal charge, but you would be required to make restitution. We see many judgments in the court where the judge says, you know, 60 days in jail and pay back of all this stuff plus this and that for harm. That's restitution. So God is just. We understand that. And God, everything God does is good. God is light and him is no darkness at all. And we've been thinking about that and the character of God as we've been going through the book of Exodus, that God is good and only does good. And so Things do go wrong in life, and we, we make mistakes. And I shared that example a week or so ago, but when I was in a fender bender on PCH by Main Street a few years back in the church van, and I was changing from one lane to another, and it was the last weekend of June, so it was really getting busy down there, and I was coming from Dog Beach going south. And I changed from this lane to a left lane, and I didn't use my blinker. At the same time, another car was in that left arrow turn lane to turn left onto Main Street, they had a red left arrow, and that's a straight white line. Well, at the same time, they, they were backed up, and they realized they didn't want to do that, so they jumped over the same time I was changing lanes, not using my blinker. And I had Luke and Nate Dorman in the car, and we, we sideswiped each other. Now, the church van, I think it's a beast. I mean, the church van is a beast. It's like lead, follow, or get out of the way. It's the same van that L.A. SWAT would use 10 years ago. I think it's a beast. The other car was a brand-new car. And it wrecked their first day of summer. And I felt bad for them. We had to go down to First Street and turn left by the Dairy Queen before Pacific City was even built and pull over on the right and all that. But I, from the very beginning, said, you know, I'm 50% to blame here because I made a left turn without using my blinker. And I accept that responsibility. The other person did not accept the responsibility. And when I saw the report given to the insurance people, it was a complete lie. It was a total, absolute lie. 
And I know that with the witness of two or more. And it was, it was madness. It was like, oh my goodness, Lord, like, who would do that? Like, how, like, don't we all accept responsibility for what we did? Like, if I'm in a left arrow with a red light, with a white, yeah, with a white line, solid white, and I jump over and hit another car, I'm going to accept responsibility for my part for jumping out of the lane on a red over a white line and sideswiping a car. Well, the interesting thing about that story is even though they denied any wrongdoing, the insurance company settled 50-50 responsibility. It's not their first rodeo in insurance people. And we were both held liable, and that's the way it worked. Both their insurance company and my insurance company, and praise the Lord, we're both insured, had to pay uh, equal portion. They saw it as a 50-50 responsibility, which is exactly what it was. Now, I'm not here trying to justify myself. I'm just simply saying that when that happened, in my heart, in my convictions, with my worldview, I knew I didn't use my blinker, and I'm guilty. And I saw myself as being accountable, and the restitution is whatever it requires. The other person didn't. And they made it a very grievous and arduous process that played out for quite some time. They hired a lawyer to try and fight for to the penny their damage on their car, and they lost. Because there was a testimony of other witnesses that that's not, there wasn't, not it. So it's really important that we don't need a judge to govern us, or even government to govern us. We want to be governed by God, and we need to accept responsibility and accountability for ourselves and our actions and what we do. We need our own moral compass based upon the Lord that guides and defines our character of right and wrong in this human experience. And if we have that before the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we will make the right decisions in life, and we will accept it when we're wrong, and we will seek to make restitution in how to make it right. You can be wrong in a conversation, it gets heated, and you go back and tell someone, I'm sorry. That's making restitution. That's accountability, making restitution. You, you might have been in a business thing, and it just went a certain way, and you know, you've, you accept a greater responsibility than maybe someone else holds you to, and you want to put in more money to make it right. God's going to honor that. God looks at the heart. And remember, it's never about the money. Look at me. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart with God and faith and character of faith. It's never about the money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's, we never see the righteous forsaken or begging for bread in the city. It's never about the money. It's about the heart. How we treat money reveals our heart. So you can never go wrong by personally, before the Lord, in your own relationship with the Lord, holding yourself accountable for your actions, good and bad, and responsible to make things right when you can. And it's as much as up to you that peace be with all men or make things right. That's what we want to do. That honors Jesus Christ. That's the Christian faith in the year of our Lord 2020, and that's the Christian faith from the time Jesus rose from the grave, is we accept responsibility for our actions, and we make things right when and where it's necessary and however we can. Now, some things are hard to make right, and there are times you need a judge, you need an arbitrator, but Jesus himself said, hey, before you guys get before a judge and you get thrown in the clink, you should try and reconcile with that person and resolve this and make it right. It's always preferable. It's always preferable. Main application. If you have the relationship right morally, vertically with God, you will see horizontally with people, and you will know when you're right or wrong, and you'll do your best you can to resolve things, accept responsibility for your actions, not make excuses, and make things right when and how you can to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the application. 
Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us forgive others. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to give us faith and the gifts of the Spirit to persevere in difficult things that we're talking about here. Also, people might take our property and damage it, right? Well, this is also to our benefit if people do things against us and we're completely innocent and they damage our property or stole our property or whatever. It's a standard by which they should be held accountable. But for us, we got to let it go. For example, when I was in France three years ago with the U.S. surf team at the World Surfing Games, I had that $5,000 camera and lens that was stolen right, right in front of me in our hotel in France. There's nothing I could do about it. We had to give it to the Lord. Our insurance people actually, praise the Lord, they, they gave a portion of that back, which they weren't required to do. It was really cool. We have great church insurance, by the way. And so that was really neat. But like, you know, you feel violated, right? Like someone stole, we were walking out the door. I set the lens down with the surfers on the team. And I went back in for 30 seconds to grab something. And it was a gated hotel. And someone came by and grabbed that $5,000 camera. And you think, well, what are you going to do? There's thieves in the world. And they took it. And that's that. And they'll give an account for it. There is no restitution for us in that sense of justice for the crime of the theft but the insurance company came through. So these are all things, these are practical things. These are things we deal with in day-to-day life. There's disputes, which brings us to a second application here, the judges. You'll notice here in verse 7 and 8, is verse 8, you'll bring them to the judges. And then we're told that the judges, whomever the judges condemn, shall pay double his neighbor. I could not help but think how important it is to be a judge. And how serious it is to be a judge. Now, many of you have been to court for various reasons, like you're there supporting someone, or maybe you've been there for your own stuff with court, or you've been called in for jury duty, and maybe you got in the courtroom as, a, as they're screening the jurors and the lawyers for both sides or interviewing potential jurors and the judge. If you've ever been a part of that, you can raise your hand on the lens, but I've been a part of that a couple times, actually. It's a very fascinating thing to watch the judicial process take place. And... I look at those judges, they walk in the room and everyone, you know, all stand and it's the judge and it's not TV like Judge Judy or something. It's like it's a judge and this is his life, this is his job. He went to school for years and years and years more than most of us to be a judge and he's got to know the law. It's criminal law too, by the way, or it's maybe civil law in some cases like lawsuits and stuff like that. And they, they have to know all these things and then they listen to two sides that are convinced they're right. And sometimes people are telling the truth. Sometimes people are lying. So they need to discern and recognize these things. Can you imagine being a judge? It'd be so hard to be a judge. But one thing we see in the book of Proverbs is God hates a wicked judge. And he honors and blesses a good judge. And I can't help but think that, you know, even the Lord just says in the human experience, you know what? I'm delegating this. The Lord's not going to, he's not going to sit there and arbitrate every little thing. He's going to work through the human government and the human experience with the nation of Israel and in human experience anyways, which is why Romans 13 and these other passages there in the Bible in the New Testament, because there's a flow of human government and there's no government appointed that's not appointed by God, either favorably or disfavorably for a purpose of God, and they have to make judgments at the highest level. And then the judges make them at a lower level. And, you know, you just figure it's a human experience. There's like good teachers and bad teachers, good judges and bad judges, good doctors and bad doctors, Good police, bad police. Like, you want to find good, you can find good. You want to find bad, you can find bad. Bad. But to me, I just look at this. What a responsibility to be a judge. And what an accountability. If any judge ever watches this study, what an accountability you have to stand before the Lord. But it's still second to mind because let not all be teachers for we will receive a stricter judgment. So I have even a higher accountability 
or teaching the word of God as a shepherd of the flock of God. But I still go, whoa, judges, that's serious stuff. So if you're ever involved in a court case, I would just say this, what, how we always pray. Like you pray for doctors when there's surgery and stuff like that. We just pray that God would give favor in the eyes of the judge, that there would be justice, that they'd have wisdom to make the right call based upon the Lord. Because sometimes we don't even know what the right judgment is, right? Like who really knows? There's just times you just don't know. So I just pray when I've been in court situations supporting people or pray for people in our church that have gone to court for various things, child custody, adoption, stuff like that. I just pray that God would give them favor before the judge and the judges and that God, the truth would be known and what's righteous and true and just and noble would be the decisions of the judges. So accountability, responsibility, make it right. And judges, hmm, pray for your judges when you got a judge. Now we pick it up in verse 16. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. That, of course, would be a sexual relationship between a human being and an animal. He who sacrifices any god except the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garments as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be what, when he cries to me, I will hear, and I, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God, nor curse the ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, do with your oxen, your sheep, and it shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Well, this cluster of elements of the civil law look like the book of Proverbs, right? Just changing subjects and topics. And we get the three capital punishments right away. No sorcery. There's no room for sorcery in, in uh, a good society. Wherever there's sorcery, there's nothing but evil. It's the demonic. It's the devil. It's evil. It's destructive. Uh, in societies where witchcraft and sorcery are allowed, great evil persists and there's great oppression on those people. Always has been, always will be. Many missionaries that go out for the witness of Christ and the light, they encounter in some cultures that have been close to the gospel incredible depths of demonic depravity through sorcery. Obviously, the sexual, inner, uh, sexual actions between humans and animals is just beyond degenerate. It's just, well, it's unnatural. It's unnatural. And it's contrary to God's order. And it's a great evil. And it can never be permitted. This is God's law. At least not amongst his people in the time of their covenant between Israel and God as a nation. Sacrificing other gods could never be permitted. Because their whole covenant, their whole existence is because they have a relationship with God. So why are you going to serve other gods? I am the Lord, there is no other. He's, he's God. He's Yahweh of the burning bush. So he's the all-sufficient one. So why would we ever worship false gods? And we talked about this last week with the Ten Commandments. The reason we worship false gods is some people are violent and they're murderous and they like to kill people. And so they worship, you know, Baal and they like that. Some people think they have the power to decide which babies live and don't live. And they like Moloch, who's an angry God. Some, some people like Asterisk and they, everything's sexual with them. So they're going to worship sexual gods. 
So there's nothing new under the sun of, of, of various fleshly, carnal, sinful behavior in the human experience. There were false gods behind them by which the people would participate in a form of worship related to that in that doing that. So it's not just that they're like bowing down to some altar. They're bowing down to the ideas of the altar and they're participating in the behavior that's sinful and destructive to themselves, to their families and society in worshiping those gods. And God didn't save Israel so they could blaspheme his name, dishonor his Sabbath, and then worship false gods and offer up their babies to false gods and pervert themselves with the evil of the land. In fact, when we get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we get a lot more of this stuff like when you get to the land, you got to drive them out. We'll get more of that tonight, actually. So they just there's no room for all that. Now, he did give the practical insight about strangers. you got to respect strangers. We just have to have empathy on that. We'll come back to that later on in the next chapter. Not to afflict the widow or the fatherless child. Right, like those who are defenseless, God defends. In fact, the Bible tells us it's honorable to defend the defenseless. That's very important, and there it is. We see it right there. If you lend money to someone that's poor, let it go. Proverbs tells us neither a borrower nor lender be, essentially. So it's, you know, with a church, we're never a savings and loan, right? People have come to churches at various times asking for a loan on this and that. It's, we would never be that way. Either we can help you, we feel God's call us to help you if we can. We, we, might, we might have the resources to help you, we might not. And then we have to determine whether or not we feel God's calling us to help with those situations. And every situation is different. We learn a lot of good principles being on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa and being here through the years and... We want to be a blessing however we can be, and it's never about being a savings and loan. In the first year of our church, both uh, Brian and Jeremy got pulled into a situation where they loaned money to people in the church, actually the same people, without knowing it. And we found out randomly, and the people had kind of faded back from church. And I was like, I wonder what's up with that. You know, and they're like, well, I loaned them some money. I'm like, you loaned them money? And then the other guy said, I loaned them money too. And I was like, okay, ministry 101. Pastors don't loan money because if people can't pay it back, generally if they need it, you should give it. But if generally they can't pay it back in most cases, then they're not going to want to come to church because no one wants to owe the pastor money. So you have to release them immediately from those loans. And they both totally agreed. And it was a learning experience for Brian and Jeremy, the first year they're here. It's actually before either one was ordained to be a pastor. I was like, you, you gotta let it go. And I think Jeremy had to let go a lot more than Brian, but they both had to let it go. You know, that's family, that's personal, but they both, they both had to let it go because we're not a savings and loans. We're gonna bless people and help people if we can, and if we can't, we're not. And in some cases, we've helped people in tragedies with large sums of money, and they still end up hating me and hating the church. You just never know. We, there are people that have been nothing but givers for 15 years, and never ask for anything. Everyone's different in the human experience. And we learned from Pastor Chuck great wisdom on how to approach things. You know how many people show up at Calvary Costa Mesa back in the day looking for something free? Daily. That's how many. Daily. Daily. From all over Orange County. And we learned as pastors to discern a situation with a certain protocol and procedures. The bottom line is we don't lend money. If we want to bust people, we bust them. If you see someone that's got a sign at the red light, left turn red light, and you want to bust them, bust them. So bountifully. The one so bountifully reap bountifully. It doesn't matter how they got there. Like uh, I saw a lady with a sign. Three kids. Yeah, it doesn't matter how she got there. There's a story behind that. Did she trust in men who let her down? Who cheated on her? Who knows? I don't know. Did she do drugs and wasn't a good mom? I don't know. But she's a mom of three kids and I want to help her. So help her. 
You don't have to overthink it. If, if you want to sow bountifully, sow bountifully. But we're not a savings and loan. And I don't think his disciples were called to be savings and loans. Have a heart for everybody. If you feel led to help, help. If not, like, like Jeremy used to say, God is a cheerful giver, and I'm not feeling cheerful, so I'm not giving. That's how he would gauge things. Like, you know, I'd be like, oh, okay, that's easy. So Jeremy says you can't have any. So anyways, I say that facetiously. But truthfully, honestly, transparently, we should sow bountifully, but we want to sow with discernment. And we're not called to lend money. We're called to sow bountifully. We want to sow, sow bountifully. And then we see here, even so, like, like the homeless, you've got to give them their coat back, right? So if you can imagine, like, you loan someone money and they're homeless in Huntington Beach. We, we see where the homeless are throughout parts of Orange County. Give them their coat back. Can you imagine the homeless people not having their coat when they go to bed at night on Beach Boulevard or on PCH here by the bus stop or whatever? It gets cold. Even in the summer, it gets cold. Give them their coat back. Just think if you were homeless, doesn't matter how you got there, give them their coat back. That's what they got. God says give them their coat back. We can never harden our heart that way with humanity. We need to have a tender heart. No rebellion, cursing God or his rulers. We need to respect God's authorities, verse 28. We need to honor him with our first fruits. And verse 31, you should be holy men. Man, we are set apart. The body of Christ is set apart. We're to be sanctified. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but you, you just see the context, like you're not going to eat meat torn by a wild beast. Yeah, that's what dogs do. So in Jesus' name, we don't act like dogs. That's, that's not, we're to be holy. We're, they're, we're different. We're not better than, we're just set apart. And it's honorable. And what's true, virtuous, praiseworthy. So we see that. Verse 23, read on more of this stuff. Uh, the, the, this element of the law, the civil law. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in dispute so as to turn aside after many a pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you would refrain from helping it. You shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will just, for I will not justify the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Well, just worth saying these verses again, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil and keep yourself far from a false matter. This is a good word during this time where everyone's worked up with COVID-19. There's a lot of passion and intensity out there, a lot of voices clanging, banging very loud, there's a lot of different perspectives on a lot of different things. There's a lot of different types of fear. There's a lot of different flashpoints. And even this week, in speaking with just different people that I know of very diverse backgrounds and situations with political ideologies and stuff, people are really intense right now and worked up on different things. And I will just tell you one more time, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. So make sure if you're following a crowd, it's to do righteousness and what honors the Lord and is consistent with his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. And then again, this verse, keep yourself far from a false matter. There is so much confusion over fact and fiction and falsehood in all of our media that we have availed to us. 
There is censoring of words. There's censoring of articles and things that you can no longer find. But even if you could find them, what's it going to do? What can you really do with certain situations? The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. So all the secret diabolical things that people might be doing to try and bring about the demise of whatever they might be bringing the demise about, what we're working up in our mind is, hey, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. I would be more worried about the Ten Commandments being lived out by my life through the Holy Spirit than what people are plotting to destroy whatever they're plotting to destroy. Don't follow a false matter. Keep yourself from a false matter. When you come what you don't know, fall back what you do know. And God's word is a compass, and it will always guide us. The Lord has spoken to me so clearly during these 10 weeks of COVID-19. Hey, shut out all the white noise. My word, my spirit. And it's been going really good for me lately because that's all I got. And the sun is out, the sky is blue, the sea breeze is crisp, and it's a beautiful day. And some days are, are hard, some days are are joyful, but the Lord's over all of it. We have to block out all that noise right now, now more than ever, because everything's changed. Don't follow crowd to do evil and keep yourself from a false matter. The Bible tells us to test all things and hold fast that which is good. Now more than ever, for those who name the name of Jesus and are called to be a light, that's what we need to do. Also, it says in verse 9, you shall not oppress a stranger for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, which is a repeat, if you will, of what it said back in verse 21 of chapter 22. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him for you are strangers. There's a lot to be said about being a stranger. And again, it even says so in the following verse, verse 12, about strangers, that the strangers may be refreshed even in the seventh year of the six-year Sabbath, right? You, seven years of the land in the seventh year. So it mentions the strangers in just a few verses. We need to understand that God loves everybody and he's for everybody. And those who have ever traveled the world, you know what it's like to be a stranger. If you've ever traveled the world, you know what it's like to be a stranger. To be the gringo in Nicaragua at the little mini mart off the dirt road, you're a stranger. You walk in there, you feel awkward, you're the stranger. To, to be the American at the mini mart and the road between Vadimir and Nizhny Novgorod, you're the American. And they're all speaking Russian. And you're a stranger. Do you know what it's like, like when you're in a foreign country, you're trying to buy gas, and it, you're the stranger. Just even when I was in Russia, I remember I left the conference one day, and I was walking back to the hotel, and I went into, I was hungry, and I went to this bakery. And, I mean, this Russian woman working the counter, she's right out of every movie you ever saw where it's a Russian woman. Like, she is, she got the casting for the part. She looks like the woman working. And everybody in there is like, you know, it's like that. I'm just like, I'm looking at the bread, ruples. I'm trying to figure out rubles in my mind to dollars. How much this bread is? What's it matter anyways? I got plenty of cash. I'm like, and she says something like, you know, she's not a divot. She's not a divot. Like that's 69 if you don't know your Russian numbers. But like, you just like pull out your money and you just put it out there. You ever done that? in a foreign country, like, you, you just help us, like, she's not the diva, she's not the diva, she's not the diva, she's like, nee, nee. and then gives back the change, but they don't hand it to you, don't reach for the change in Russia, you never exchange money in Russia, they put it on the counter, and then you pick it up, you go to grab the money, like, Nip! 
You know, it's like, it's different. You're a stranger in a strange land. You're a foreigner. You ever been a foreigner in a foreign land? That's what happens. It's not your world. It's their world. And I've traveled the world. It's the same thing in Japan. There's just certain things. You know, like I once stood on a pillar on the beach in, in Iquique, Chile. The locals are going to stone me with rocks. I know, just like this little rock pillar thing. I had no identification on it. I stood up to get a better angle of taking photos. Evidently, it almost started a riot. They were going to kill the Chilean coach. I was disrespecting something that was something. You ever been a stranger in a, in a foreign land? It's, it's, it's humbling. You feel insecure. You hit customs in a foreign country you've never been to before. When I went to El Salvador to do ministry three years ago, I got off the plane, and you know I'm going through customs by myself in El Salvador. I don't know anybody there. Someone's going to pick me up. I know some Spanish by that time. You're just like, you're the gringo in El Salvador. And you're just like, you just have to consider how others feel. This will help us think how people feel when they come to our country and they're visiting or they've come here to try and find a better life because they've in a really bad country where they don't have anywhere near the opportunities we have. Now, I don't know your legacy of your parents. I do know Sam's parents. Sam's dad left communist Romania by himself, his family behind, to try and get a better life for his family. With other men, he attempted to cross the Danabi River with people shooting at him. He arrived in communist Yugoslavia, where he had a 1 in 20 chance to be held as a prisoner for a month and have a chance to immigrate to the United States. It's exactly what happened. It went his way. He risked his life for a better life, and he crossed the Danabi. He was imprisoned in Yugoslavia under Tito, and then he got the chance to come to the United States, and they built a better life in Santa Ana, California, right by the 5 Freeway. And Sam grew up originally in communist Romania, where the inspectors would come, the communist inspectors' fingernails. They would eat meat once a, once a year. The communists came and took all their produce from their farm and what they had. And the meat they got to eat was bad meat, and it made them all sick. It's a true story. But Sam grew up in America playing baseball in Southern California. They didn't speak English when they came here. They spoke Romanian. That's why the Romanians hang together. Anthony's dad, he came from Vietnam. I went to his memorial. He came to the United States in the 50s from Vietnam, working for, with the government in, the United, in Washington, D.C. He spoke Vietnamese in a post-World War II world. Ho Chi Minh was alive. The French were still in Indo, French Indochina. See, we all have a story that precedes us. Baran is the village in Norway. Six generations ago, Hoke and Brand got on that boat and came to Ellis Island without his family in 1903. Worked two years in Illinois and sent the money back so his wife and kids, my grandfather Fred, could come to the United States. And she arrived through Ellis Island not knowing a word of English with all these kids on the ship and took the train to Illinois. And that Fred Baran, son of Hoke and Brand, married Esther Truesdale, whose grandfather was a Civil War veteran from the North, and they had my dad, Phil Baran, in 1930, who just turned 90. And then Phil Baran had me, his middle child, and I have Luke, and Luke just had Wilkie. There are six generations of Baran, but it began from the name of a village in Norway in the late 1800s. You shall not oppress the stranger. This is the heart of God. And no matter what you think about people who are here legally or illegally or what you think how it's going, listen, you can never go wrong with Jesus Christ by looking upon everybody 
with empathy and compassion and getting out of our little bubble of how our world is, Joe USA, and understand there's a big world out there and I can't blame anyone for trying to come here and have a better life. Now, I might have opinions how things could be done in a different way. How we handle this stuff is not for me. I chose to leave school in high school. I'd stayed in school, maybe done this, done that. Maybe I could be a part of the solution legally. I'm not. But I can pray for things, and I can smile at people, whether they come from Latin America or the Middle East. We can smile. And believe me, when you're buying bread and it's, she's not so divot. If that woman's smiling, you feel better about it. When you're the stranger and someone smiles, it makes your day in a foreign country. So be that person in this country. Because everyone came here pretty much from somewhere else. Don't ever forget that. And don't lose the heart of Christ toward humanity around us. It's not us against them. It's Christ on the cross for all humanity. And we read on. Verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce. For the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. Yeah, the illegal immigrants allowed to come eat your vineyard for a year. It's pretty cool. God cares about everybody. He loves humanity. Everyone's made in the image of God. Sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. Verse 13, and all that I have said to you, be circumspect, make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Hey, listen, we need to filter stuff. <laughs> we need to filter stuff. Don't even say it. The Lord's like, don't even talk about that. Like, you ever say to your kid, like, you guys that have adult kids, you'd be like, why don't even, don't even, why are we talking about it? Don't even talk about that. Like, I don't want to hear that. Or as we say to the teenage kids, like, you know, God gave you a filter. Just because you're thinking it doesn't mean you need to express it. And we need to be circumspect. And I think that in ministry all the time as a pastor, sometimes there's things I want to say, like, and, and my wife's like, like, my wife's been very good to help me, like, don't even say that. Like, thank you. But it's even better if the Holy Spirit tells you not to say it. Even though my wife has a very high success rate of filtering me when I need to be filtered, the Holy Spirit is 100%. My wife's very close to that. The Holy Spirit's 100%. Again, self-governed, right? If we're subject to the Holy Spirit, we're self-governed. We don't need my wife our wives or our husbands to filter us. We're governed by the Lord and the Holy Spirit will filter us. Just, even a fool's kind of wise when he holds his peace. And so there's just certain things we don't even talk about. Like, I don't want to hear this. Can't tell you how many times. I'm, someone's coming this after service here or Big Calvary or come in the office a few times. They start saying stuff like, I don't want to hear this. Don't even talk like that. This is the house of God. I, didn't, I don't want, we don't, I quit meeting in the office because people say stuff in the office they won't say in the sanctuary. So let's go in the sanctuary because this is a restraint. It's a filter. You know that. The sanctuary is a natural filter. That's why I always like to pray with people. That's why I hate to do any counseling in the offices, ever. Because you're in the office, and you're unfiltered sometimes. But even at Calvary, I began to do all my counseling in the sanctuary. Now, what did you want to talk about? Because this is where we worship. This is where we give. This is where we receive the word. And this is where we fellowship. So let's all filter. And don't even say that. Be circumspect. Don't even talk about that. We don't want to hear that. Don't talk about that. Verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me. In the year, you shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I command you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for you came out of Egypt. 
Right, that's when you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty in the Feast of Harvest, that's Pentecost, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, in the Feast of Ingatherings at the end of the year, which you have gathered in the fruit of your labor from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, as we go forward in Leviticus and Numbers, we'll get more of this stuff, Deuteronomy. So we'll cover this at another time, probably in greater detail. This verse, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, is one of those unusual verses that you get in the Bible. And it's interesting because what we do know is it's very clear what God told him not to do. So whatever the purpose is, it's one of those ones we just don't know why it's there. Whatever the purpose is, what not to do is very clear. We don't know why not to do it, but we know what not to do. And that's the way it is a lot of times with the Lord. You may not know why he's saying, don't do this or do this, but if he said to do it or not do it, then you need to do it or not do it. Your parents are like that sometimes. Hey, just do this. Well, why? Just do it. Because I'm looking out for your best interest. Or I don't need a reason, but God always has a good reason. And there's like, you can find 20 suggestions for why this is like this, this particular passage. I like the one that just says, there's something cruel about boiling a goat in its mother's milk. There's a cruelty to it. I like that one. Now, they say, they speculate it was part of uh, various Canaanite idolatrous practices, which is very possible, if not probable. We just don't know. But there is something cruel about, like, boiling a goat in its mother's milk, because the milk gave it life, so now we're going to, when it's dead, boil it in that. It's just, it's, it's weird. It's cruel. God hates cruelty. He loves compassion. We don't want to ever, we want to stay on the side of compassion and stay away from cruelty. I remember a couple of years ago at the U.S. Surfing Championships, these kids picked up a big crab at Lower Trestles, and it was a big crab, and they brought it up on the sand, and they're like being cruel to it, like they're throwing it. Just, and I, I got off the tower, and I went down, and I picked up that crab, and I put him back on the rocks, and I go, that's not cool. All creatures of our God and King, that's not cool. And I looked at the parents like, who lets their kids treat living creatures like this? Like, it's, just, it's never a good sign. Cruelty is never a good sign under any circumstance. All creatures of our God and King. Verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, that would be the Mediterranean Sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. That's the Euphrates River. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. 
this is an interesting passage where, first of all, we get the angel whose name is in the Lord. Most people believe this is a reference to Jesus Christ as a theophany or Christophany. Uh, Jesus appeared in the Old Testament many times in his pre-incarnate state before he came to the Virgin Mary as Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son of God, part of creation, sustainer of the universe, working in times past. Remember, he's the commander of the Lord's army. He's the one speaking at the burning bush, and we see that. And so there's almost a uh, universal agreement with Bible-believing Christians that this is Jesus who went before them in the Old Testament, and he is this angel, the, the angel, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, and there's a big difference. If not, it's obviously a very high-ranking angel, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for what it worth, actually believe this is Michael the Archangel, who they believe is Jesus anyways. So you, you get, you're going to get different perspectives on this, but certainly because of what this angel did and how he was, and we know the role of Jesus in the Old Testament, I believe it's a theophany of Christ, and that the angel that went before them was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God in his pre-incarnate state as the eternal creator, sustainer, savior of the universe. So they had the Lord on their side. They had all divine promises and insight on their side and they were to be blessed look at verse 25 like he's going to bless you with your bread and your water we already saw the manna and the water from the rock right we saw that back in chapter 17 the manna god's always he's our provider he meets our needs and good health promise good health and how about i will fulfill the number of your days verse 26 don't we want to fulfill the number of our days like i want to fulfill the number of our days not just live the fullness of those days but to Fulfill them in the sense of all that God wants to do. I love that. So if we're letting the Lord lead us and we're abiding in him and his spirit's working in our life, we will, just by the natural overflow of the, the spiritual life, we'll be fulfilling the purpose of our days. By the way, I've really been thinking about this a lot with COVID-19, and I've said this many times in the pulpit and publicly and privately, that when we come through this, I want to be a better version of who I'm meant to be in Jesus' name. I don't want to be the same person that I was in February, and nor do you. This is so unusual, so life-changing, so different that we have to go deeper in character with the Lord and be more who we're meant to be than we ever were at the start of this year. Because obviously 2020 is going to look very different at its end than it was at its beginning. And so should you, and so should I. We need a more spirit-filled husband, pastor, disciple, dad, grandpa, we, citizen. We want to be spirit-filled people. And we want to have all the blessings and be all in. So that means breaking down things and overthrowing things that are contrary to the work of the Spirit in our life. They had to break down pillars. We need to break down things of our flesh. We need to break down pursuits and attitudes and actions that are contrary to the heart of the Lord. And I'm inviting him to do that in my life. If I'm going to fulfill the number of my days, I'm almost 60, and the days of man are 70 by measure of strength 80. I'm in the fourth quarter, and I might even be in the two-minute warning. It might even be the last play of the game, right? We never know. But if you're younger, you might think, oh, I might have 60 years. You might. You might not. Our days and lives are in his hands. But just know this. When you get about my age, you just want to finish strong. You want to finish strong. That's what you want to do. You want to pour it on. You want to press in, and you want to pour it on. Now, you might feel that way when you're 20 or 30. Good for you, or 40 or 50. I certainly hope you'd feel that way at 60. You know, it's hard for me being a little bit older, is seeing friends that I grew up with that don't love the Lord at my age. It is really hard to see, you know, in social media, people I love and care about and grew up with that don't walk with the Lord, and they're my age. It, it, it gives me a heavy heart. It makes me sad. I pray for them. I want to bless them, but I'm just going to pour it on. 
I'm just going to keep playing praise music and dance around like a crazy monkey because I'm going to heaven and I know Jesus and I'm going to fulfill the ministry he has for me as best I can until I'm done. I want to fulfill my days and so do you. And so we realize in this passage, God's prophetically speaking what he'd do for the nation of Israel before they came into the land, that he'd go before them and he would drive them out, but he wouldn't give them everything at one time. We can't handle everything at one time. Little by little, poco y poco. Like we cannot handle everything at one time. God gives us tr truths and understandings in increments as we respond. To him who has, to her who has, more will be given. And he drove them out little by little. Now, it was practically for the wild animals, but God does things in our life little by little so we can absorb it and be ready for it and fulfill our days. But in the end, when you look at this passage, he says, I'm going to drive out your enemies and I'll fight your battles, but you better rip down the things that are contrary to me and my character. That's your responsibility. I'll fight your battles. I'll fight your battles, but you better rip down those things that are contrary to me because they'll destroy you if you don't rip them down. So let us say in Jesus' name, we want to destroy whatever's contrary to your heart, your character, and your plans because we don't want to destroy us and let us be more who we're meant to be.